Good evening, everybody. Um, there, there will be some more people uh, coming in, but we're going to go ahead and no, I didn't, and get started tonight. Thank you for your presence here. My name is Brian Richardson. I'm one of the associate pastors at First Baptist Church San Antonio. And we present a weekly forum called Midweek in the City. It's aimed at fostering conversation from a Christian-informed perspective on various social, scientific, political, economic, cultural questions of our day. And we usually host it on our church campus, but occasionally we move it off-site, and so here we are at Pearl Studio tonight. Thank you to the staff at Pearl uh, and to the AV personnel, and thank you also to the FBCSA AV staff. All of you are helping this event happen this evening. And for this conversation on sexuality and faith, we're pleased to have a panel of folks who approach this uh, question and these questions more thoughtfully than anybody I know. Joining us for this discussion is Ron Belgau in the middle there, writer, lecturer, co-founder with New Testament scholar Wesley Hill of the blog spiritualfriendship.org. Ron studied philosophy at St. Louis University where he also taught ethics, medical ethics, and philosophy of religion. Matthew Lee Anderson on the end there. Uh, Matt is a D-Phil, or we would say PhD, but they say D-Phil in Oxford. Uh, <laughs> candidate in Christian ethics uh, at Oxford and a research associate for the Institute at the Study of Religion at Baylor University. And he's the founder of Mere Orthodoxy, um, a, a blog um, and uh, that is worth your time to check out as well. And the author of two books, including The End of Our Exploring, a book about questions and the confidence of faith. And Johanna Finnegan, right here, uh, Johanna has degrees in philosophy from Princeton and MIT, PhD from MIT in philosophy, and she blogged about sexuality and mixed orientation marriage for several years and is a member of the advisory committee for spiritualfriendship.org, and she resides in Ohio with her husband and two daughters. And let's please welcome these folks to Midweek in the City. Now, as we, as we start tonight, a, a couple of things. Um, first, we will devote a portion of this time uh, tonight, later on, to Q&A, and you can ask your questions verbally, or you can text your questions, and to do that, please go to Slido, it sounds weird, but um, S-L-I-D-O, S-L-I-D-O dot com, Slido dot com, and enter the code midweek, um, and just midweek, one word, you'll be able to type and text your question from that screen. So that's slido.com midweek. Second, thoughts and questions about sexuality can invite anxiety and confusion within people and disagreement among people. The historic Christian sexual ethic, which arises from the orthodox understanding of the Bible's teachings on sex, is that sexual expression is ordered toward procreation and the building of stable families for the next generation, therefore is only to be engaged in by a man and a woman in a marriage. Christian communities 
are confronting questions about how to maintain faithfulness to the Bible's teachings when many in those communities find themselves in a different place within their own sexual self-understanding. What then? What then? The Christian community has famously been, at best, awkward and at worst, unloving when it comes to these questions. Not always. Uh, there are brighter spots in our history, but often this has been the case in these latter days. This event tonight is an attempt at taking a step towards addressing three questions. The first is, how can I live in faithfulness to the Bible's teachings and within Christian community as a person who is other than straight regarding sexual orientation? That will require some rethinking on all our parts. The second question is, what does a Christ-informed sexual ethic look like? That's going to require some recovery of truths that we have ignored or rejected or turned into weapons. And the third question is, how can churches exist as communities of love and humility in which no one stands alone? We must recover love no matter what. It's Christ's most basic commandment to the church. With that said, let's begin our time with our panel. Hello, panel. Um, <laughs> Hello, Pastor. <laughs> and again, I'm so glad y'all are here. Um, so in, in beginning this, and we've, we've all had conversations all day long uh, about all this, so we're just rehashing all this. It's not uncommon, it's not uncommon for people to believe we're all talking about the same thing in matters of human sexuality, but are we actually doing that? Are we actually talking about the same thing? For starters, may we expand on some fundamental terms. What are we actually talking about when we talk about sexual orientation, sexual identity, and sexual desire? You, you want to, Ron, you want to start that off here? And by okay. the way, let me just say, Ron, you... Uh, identify as a gay Christian man who is celibate. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start with sexual desire because I think in some ways uh, sexual orientation and sexual identity are more easily explained with reference to sexual desire. So I think, you know, there's the really obvious we all understand you know, if you're desiring to have sex with a person, that's clearly sexual desire. Um, and then as you move back from that, you get into uh, vaguer cases of, you know, there's a way that you're drawn to a person and this is something that uh, could develop into sort of overt sexual desire of the obvious kind, maybe not. Um, and so I think it's important to see it in sort of concentric rings, that there's the really clear-cut cases of sexual desire, and then there's other kind ways that you can be drawn to a person that might in some ways be connected with sexuality or might be less connected with it. Um, I think in our culture, uh, we often assume that sexual desire is the root of all love or all attraction to another person. And I think that as Christians, actually love is a much more fundamental thing than sexual desire. That 
the desire to be loved and to love, which can take a variety of expressions, is much more basic than sexual desire. But for example, Freud thought that everything, including say love between parents and children, was in some way an expression of what he called libido, which was desire for pleasure, sexual desire. So I think that distinction is important. Then when you talk about sexual orientation, um, I would first of all just talk about sexual orientation as a way of describing experience. You don't start with a whole theory of what this means, but you just say there's a pattern that some people's sexual desires um, go towards the same sex. Most people's sexual desires go towards the opposite sex. Some people are sometimes the same sex, sometimes the opposite sex. Um, and the starting point is just it's helpful to be able to describe that there's a pattern here, that the pattern tends to be relatively stable once it's established. Um, but then we could argue about um, you know, why does that pattern arise? You don't just recognizing that there's a pattern doesn't tell you whether it's, you're born that way or whether it's a result of environment or whatever. Um, recognizing that there's a pattern doesn't tell you um, is this pattern completely fixed or are there circumstances under which the pattern could change or at least alter a bit. Um, but it's helpful to have to be able to recognize that there are relatively stable patterns and that you can't just sort of snap your fingers and get it to change. And, and these patterns are what we, what we refer to for convenience sake or whatever as right. sexual orientation. Yes. And I was, I, in our conversation earlier today, I was talking about sexual orientation. And Johanna, you cautioned me uh, and thankfully so, to not um, to be so confident about what sexual orientation is because it's something that is kind of mysterious and we don't really understand it, so it's better to talk about this, this pattern rather than about this thing that we know all about called sexual orientation. You right. Say more about um, so uh, there there's debate in, in some parts of the church whether we should even be talking about uh, sexual, sexual orientation at all. Um, the concept is not found in scripture. It, it's oh, yeah, not that talked. Was, that it's, was the it, thing that you said. Right, you said. It, it's not talked about there, and so people can feel very uncomfortable. You know, are we, is this something that, that Christians should be buying into? Um, and all I, I was trying to say before is that um, Sexual orientation may be this deep thing, um, but yeah. regardless of what's, even if we can say we don't understand what exactly is going on or how it should be exactly cashed out biblically, or you know how we're going to work it out doctrinally, you know right, where it all right. slots in, the f the fact remains that people people do have you know attractions, desires, these sorts of experiences, and they do tend to follow certain patterns. And, and let me say, again, germane to the discussion, you, you come at this as a, a person who self-identifies as a lesbian in 
a mixed orientation marriage. You're, yes. you're married to a man yes. with whom you have two children. Yes. And so, so you, you have experience with plotting out, navigating these, um, these desires, and, and yet, and so in a pattern, and, and so you see right. this in a pattern, and uh, you would call that sexual orientation, but... Well, yeah. I mean, it affects, it affects my life, right? right. It's affected, right. It has affected my life since uh, I was 12, you know. Um, so whether or not, you know, how sinful you think it is, how bad you think it is, yeah. how broken you think it is, it's, it's a fact of reality, you know, from my perspective, I'd understand it, you know, a fact of reality in a fallen world. Sure. Sure. And uh, I think it's sort of a mistake uh, sort of a super spiritualizing mistake to be like, oh, you know, we shouldn't talk about this or yeah. we shouldn't label it um, and, or and we shouldn't make a big deal out of it because it, it does affect people's lives and it affects people's walks with God a lot. Absolutely. Speaking of labels, let me just say uh, the, the words, um, briefly, I want to touch on this. There's a, there's a whole conversation to be had here, but gay, straight, trans, queer, homosexual, heterosexual, same-sex desire uh, are... are Especially with the word gay, there's a, there seems to be, uh, people seem to have, um, there's a divide. You know, should we talk about it like this? Homosexual is actually more of a medical term that began uh, appearing uh, very late in human history, uh, less than 100 years ago, I, I'm guessing, I think it is. But um, what, what do we make of these terms? Are they useful, as a matter of fact? Well, I mean, one of the things that I've seen in conversations where people think, you know, we should talk about same-sex attraction rather than gay or whatever, is that you start having a conversation with, you know, a college student or whatever, yeah. and the conversation quickly devolves into, um, I want you to use the word same, the phrase same-sex attracted. Yeah, right. And Start you don't, arguing about the phrases that you right. use. Right. Whereas, um, you know, if I say I'm gay but celibate, that quickly, well, why? And so it quickly mm -hmm. goes into a very, I think, much more practical discussion. More substantial and. Why yes. do you live your life the way you live your life? And um, I have no objection to, uh, you know, if it, the group that you're in or whatever is more comfortable with same-sex attraction, uh, then I would tend to use more of that language. Um, this summer, I wrote a couple of articles for the Public Discourse, which is a fairly conservative publication. And so there, um, given the audience, and it made more sense because there I would end up spending a lot of time explaining to them why I was using the word gay. Since I didn't want to spend a lot of time arguing about language, I used the language that they were comfortable with. Um, yeah. But by the same token, I think in this culture, uh, there are a lot more people for whom the natural language for talking about a man who is attracted to other men is gay. And so to have conversations with those people, uh, the easiest thing is to just talk about uh, being gay. And then why is it that I try to follow traditional biblical teaching? One other sort of minor, well, it's actually not minor. Um, so I 
a number of years ago, wrote uh, an essay defending traditional, a sort of traditional biblical exegesis, and to be paired with um, an essay by Justin Lee, a friend of mine who um, argues for gay marriage within a sort of Christian uh, framework. Um, and because we use the terms gay, uh, that essay at one point was the number two result on Google if you type gay Christian. Now, nothing that used same-sex attraction language showed anywhere in the first several pages of results. So you have to think about if, you, if your teenager is searching, you know, what, what do I do as a gay Christian? If you're using this niche language, what you have to say about that doesn't show up. So if you want to be popular, use gay. Yeah, yeah. well, is that, that but also if you want to be... And I think that's a fair point. If you want to be, um, like, in the... If you want to be recognized in the, the way that the conversation works yeah. now... If you want to engage. Yeah, if, if you, you want, want to engage, engage it, right. meet up with it. And, and yeah. I think it's very much, with social media, you have these very, these bubbles... And so you can get into a bubble where you use this language and you use these right, hashtags right. and all of the things that people use to find what you're saying. If you're not using the language that people are looking it, for, it kind of becomes gymnastics that yeah. you try to avoid a uh, certain language. So for me, uh, most the biggest point is just you start by engaging the questions and the language that people are using, and then you try to talk about Christian faith in that language. Um, and this is, you know, an interesting thing. If, when I was studying Christian philosophy, I spent a lot of time with early church fathers, early Greek and Latin uh, writings on theology. And a lot of the terminology comes from the surrounding culture, but takes on a new meaning you know, so person starts out as a word for a character in a play. Um, but then that becomes the language that is used for the persons of the Trinity, just yeah. as an example. Yeah, yeah. And it is transformed in meaning, but it is also engaging with the language that was used in the philosophical and and that's what we're Discussions. seeing with, with the yeah. word gay. Were you? Oh, can I just, can I add a yeah, couple yeah, things absolutely. on the language point? Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I would like to say is I think there's a tendency to confuse. Uh, I think this important thing about identity is how am I thinking about myself? How am I understanding myself? Mm -hmm. the, the choices yeah. I'm making, mm -hmm. right. the relationships I'm in, you know, the obligations I have, you know, to God and others, sure. um, the things that I value. That can be a very separate thing from labels. You know, you can't tell what you can't tell what somebody's gayness means to them just because they said I'm gay right, or right. queer or or whatever. Um, and so I think it's a mistake to get hung up on on labels when the question 
uh, I think from a Christian perspective, you need to be asking is, you know, what's going on in your heart and your mind? How do you understand this experience? And are you understanding it in a way that is helping you grow in, in faithfulness and obedience? Are you growing stronger? Um, now, regarding that, Johanna, you, you, you had a, and I've alluded to this, but you, you had a really funny line <laughs> in a presentation you gave back in the summer about um, being gay. Uh, and, uh, and it was something like somebody had said to you, oh, I get it. You're going to a conference that advocates it's okay to be gay as long as you don't act on it. Mm-hmm. And, and your response to that was... Uh, what's the alternative, not get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, exactly, because you, you act on it. I mean, you, this, is, this, is how you, this is how you understand yourself, and acting on it doesn't mean just sexual activity. It just it means going on about your life, right? Right, right. yeah. And, and so um, you also, in a conversation we had uh, a few weeks ago, uh, you said the way that desire is presented in the church, um, sexual desire in particular, betrays the kind of thinking... I don't know if I'm getting this right or not. You said, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? The way that yes, the, yes. Would you would you help me on that? Oh, okay. Um, I'm 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 dying. Yeah, here. No. So the the point I was uh, I was thinking about was um, in Protestant Christianity, you know, of which I'm a proud participant. Um, yeah, a we have too, a little too proud. <laughs> we have okay. a we have yeah. a long we have a long and venerable history of being skeptical about the feasibility of, of singleness and celibate life, right? I mean, in, 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 yeah. I, I know that's a thing yeah. among, I think it's a thing among you Baptists, too. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, you know, come on. <laughs> Enough you know, with the labels. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, so it's, but it, I think it's treated as like a superpower, right? Like it's this celibacy, special gift from on high. And celibacy, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that we don't really need to talk about it. If it's your gift, oh, yeah. the Lord will make that clear right. to you. Right. And if you don't feel particularly gifted, then you should clearly just get married. Yeah. Um, I hear that rhetoric in the church all the time. And it works, I think, up to a point with straight people. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're gay, if you're same-sex attracted, you're like, well, that... Um, it's just yeah. discouraging, right? I, and we have a tendency to talk about, and I think in some ways it's a very Freudian perspective, we have a tendency to talk about sexual needs uh, as opposed to generosity and, and giving of oneself uh, right. to another. It's about getting what I need. Well, and, and we present, we, we evangelicals, uh, Baptists among them, uh, you go to Amazon.com and there, there are, tons of books on, you know, how to have mind-blowing sex in your marriage, you know, and all that. And, and, it's, and it's part of that framing of that, of that desire, I think, in terms mm-hmm. of needs and expectations and, you know, uh, serving right. each other well in the bedroom, whatever. Right. So I, I think we've just, we, among us, we have the skepticism that it's impossible, and I think that's why people were hanging on to the orientation change as, as a possibility for so long, is because we don't believe it's possible for people to not give in yeah, uh, to what yeah, they want. Right. That it's sort of a dictator that's going to direct what you're doing, um, and I think that's kind of sad, you know, for everybody, right? And I think that has effects on uh, the fact that people have premarital sex 
I mean, the Christians, right, are, because they can't wait, right, because the average age of getting married is like, what, like? It's the high 20s. Right, you know? and, and, you know, who so. can, and it, if you believe, if your theology is that celibacy isn't possible, or single, you know, sexual or, restraint or this, isn't it's possible. It's vaunted superpower that's right. very rare. That's not accessible yeah, to us mere right, mortals. Right. Yeah. Then. Then you know, how strong are you going to be able to resist mm. temptations and challenges that come? Um, and and, Matt, I'm not excluding you, but if you want to weigh in, we'll get get to you I'm in a very minute. Very happy. But, being okay. Excluded. All right. All right. <laughs> um, and. Uh, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Table is, I don't know. Sorry, sorry. I know, no, it's not you. It's it's me. Um, but uh, Ron, you, you you stated something in a conversation that we had. I keep alluding to these conversations. We've had a lot of conversations, but um, and and I'd like for you to repeat that here. You talk about sexual activity being composed of interwoven strands, and I think this is very important because what we do in our culture is we we sim- we take aspects of of sex, and we, we don't see it holistically. Talk about that sure. interwovenness. So I think I'll first of all jump off from what Johanna was saying about talking about sexual need, because I think that way of thinking about it, which is really common in our culture, sort of focuses in on the sort of immediate release, immediate pleasure experience side of things, um, which is certainly the way that Freud thought about it in a way that has been very influential both in like academic psychology and social sciences, but also just popular culture. Yeah. Um, and the Christian way of thinking starts with marriage. Um, and marriage is a lifelong union. Um, it's an image of Christ's love for the church. Uh, It's a way of being fruitful and multiplying. Um, And these things are all connected, that uh, part of the reason for it being a lifelong union is to provide the stability to raise children. Um, But it's not, I wouldn't put that in a reductive way to say that it's the only reason that it's important to be faithful is so that you don't leave your child having to be a single parented or something. And, uh, and, and yet that is that is an intrinsic yeah, but it, it's these interwoven it? strands that um, you know on the one hand, the intensity of the experience of intimacy with your spouse is part of what helps to keep you together, what helps to cement the um, the emotional closeness and uh, to keep you together to care for children, but also um, the recognition that you're there to care for children helps to carry you through times when the feeling of emotional closeness is not there. Um, But ultimately, the Christian vision of marriage has all of these things entwined together. You can't pull out any one strand and And, say... And just to to delineate that, that, again, that's procreation... Union or intimacy, intimacy and pleasure. pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have to hold all of those ideas together. Um, and I think that's just not a way that our culture really thinks of things. Um, it's interesting. 
I teaching um, philosophy, some of the things, you know, cover a lot of things in ethics, but sometimes dealing with sexual ethics, um, what was interesting to me was for how many of my students having children seemed to be a completely separate decision from the decision to have sex. For them, the existence of contraception was so baked into their thinking that you decide to have sex when you want to have sex, yeah, right. and then you decide to have children when you're ready to have children. And this is a way of thinking that would have been unimaginable. I mean, it's not just whether it's right or wrong, it's that nobody could have thought this way 100 years ago. Yeah. Because there's a funny Garrison Keillor line about uh, a woman who got uh, pregnant outside of wedlock, and the priest in Lake Wobegon says to her, well, if you didn't want to get to Chicago, don't get on the train. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. And, but the, but, but the, this, is, this is not the right. reality anymore. Prior to the availability of contraception and abortion, um, you just couldn't separate the decision to have sex from the possibility of having a child. But, but does this, uh, and let me talk about contraception just for a second, does, does this make the argument more difficult? Uh, In what sense? Uh, the argument, argument? To, to say, the argument that says that uh, sex needs to happen within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Does it? Does it? Does that remove uh, something uh, from the argument? Does it? Does it make it more difficult does to make? And Matt, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it has to. I mean, if uh, among the various goods of marriage that Ron laid out. I mean, intimacy, procreation, pleasure are all bound by a promise. They're bound by a vow. And that vow is an open-ended commitment by two individuals uh, where you bind yourself together uh, into the future. And that future orientation of the vow, that covenant that you make, um, is, is one that... Uh, in one sense, intrinsically corresponds to having children. Right? Children right. open up a future for us. That's one reason why we like them. They give us hope. They uh, uh, allow us, as uh, parents or prospective parents, the possibility of even redoing our own lives as we uh, look at mm. uh, our own emergence into this world and our parents, and we evaluate now as parents of a new person what was done to us that we loved and what we didn't love and what we're going to do differently. And in, in that process, in, in that process of having a child, we, um, we enter the future in a new way. Wow. Um, That's... And I think that, that, you know, the, by making that a, a kind of provisional choice and detaching it from... And make, making the making procreation yeah a making choice. procreation a choice and detaching yeah. it from an act of intimacy um, it's harder to see children in that particular way and it's harder to see the way in which these strands all hold together um, such that 
to remove one is, in one sense, to lose the intelligibility of the whole. Mm. Um, so it makes it harder to see what sex is, means and what it's about and, and all of its attendant. It, that's not, again, this is not to say that it's wrong, but it's just to say that it, it, it is a challenge. It's, it's much harder, right? Yeah. It shapes the imagination in such a way that, um, uh, in one sense, certain arguments become just unintelligible. Um, it's not that, for instance, the public argument uh, against gay marriage uh, is treated as false or wrong. It's that it literally doesn't compute for people anymore. Like they can't. Okay, it now say rise. more about that because this is very important. I think Matt, when it seems like there are these separate things going on in yeah. different quarters of human society. You know, you have a contraception talk over here. You know, contraception issue. You have same-sex marriage over here, but the two are really related. They are. And so, say say more about that. There are some. Ex Johanna's looking skeptical. At me, and now being I'm getting nervous here. that I'm saying wrong things. No, 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 is he no, wrong? A, is no, he I, wrong, I, Johanna? <laughs> uh, um, well, well, yes. Now that you mention it, actually, I've, yes, I've been I, married I, for 13 years. I have two daughters, and I'm not that gay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, good. Um, so they are they are connected at a structural and institutional level. Wow. Right. So that one was too much oh, yeah. revelation. Sorry. Uh, sorry. No, sorry. No, you, um, one one of the difficulties with the arguments surrounding marriage is that we're arguing about an institution. Uh, if you think about basketball as a game, um, basketball is a game that is played by players, but it has a set of rules, right? And the rules govern how the game is played. And if we think about like what happens within the game, sometimes we change the rules based on how the players play. So Steph Curry makes three-pointers at a rate that's ridiculous, and all of a sudden we're talking about maybe we should add a four-point shot because Steph Curry has broken the game of basketball mm -hmm. as we know it. So it is possible to change the rules based on how a game is played, but the argument about what the rules should be is different than um, arguments about whether or not traveling was, a, a case of traveling was traveling, or whether or not in shooting a three-pointer you stepped on the line that counted as three points or two points. And within the, the arguments around gay marriage, those two levels, if you will, got collapsed together in a way mm. that made it almost impossible for conservatives to make arguments in a way that was coherent. So we would say, here's the rules of marriage, one man and one woman, and the rejoinder would be, but these two people who are of the same sex are really happy together, right? Which is like a bit like saying, um, Steph Curry keeps making shots, and we need to add a, a four-point shot, right? It's a, it's a different kind of argument. And the, the, the reality is, is that contraception uh, is so pervasive that, and, and this idea that children have legitimacy only when chosen is so pervasive that some of the rules of marriage have just become unintelligible, such that to even try to explain why they're mm. there in the first place 
is to speak a foreign language. It's not, it's not to make an argument, I don't think. It's literally to sound like you're an alien. Um, right, you're, you're, make, you're saying things that you might as well say, well, the, you know, you're, you're advocating for rules for horse and buggy or something. Yeah. And we just didn't. Why would you do that? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so I, I do think that what has gone on in terms of um, the optionality of children, the, um, the you know, children as chosen um, and as sort of only legitimate within a union when chosen, um, does really fundamentally restructure our intuitions about the world in very deep ways. And, and, and that pervades sort of how we think about some of these, uh, uh, these other contentious issues. Okay. But well, jo and Johanna still looks unconvinced. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> well, I, I also would want to say that it's more than just contraception. So you have contraception allows yeah. people to um, have sex without having children. So it separates children from sexual intimacy and then allows sexual intimacy to be separated from marriage. Um, but there's also another side where um, 50 or 100 years ago, if a couple found themselves to be infertile, that was just another sort of given biological reality that was painful but had to be accepted and worked through. And now there's a whole range of things that can be done, um, you know, some of which I think you know, there's some types of medical treatment that make the couple able to be naturally fertile again that I don't think there's any, you know, if there's a tumor or something that's causing the problem right. and you cure it, I don't think there's any ethical questions there. But then when you get into in vitro fertilization or... Surrogacy. Um, what? Surrogacy. Surrogacy or uh, sperm donation or egg donation or um, testing embryos to if the couple is carrying um, genetic diseases to weed out the ones that would... Uh, I mean, now you get in... Essentially what's happening is a whole lot of things that had to be taken as just givens and that you have to accept what comes from God and, um, you know, find what it is, find his calling in that right. now become, um, you know, it's sort of the you can become as God, that you become able to decide for yourself, um, you know, your sexuality becomes raw material that you can use however you want. Yeah. Um, so if that means that you're too fertile and you'd rather be less fertile so that you can sleep around, that's an option. If you're not fertile enough, then you can go buy eggs or sperm from someone else to fix the problem. But it is a very, it moves from um, you know, human nature and our own circumstances as something that we receive from God and then seek his will in to something where uh, our bodies are raw material for us to do as we want to get the outcome that we want. 
you know, uh, we talked. Um, Am I? No, that's no, right. I was, I was just thinking this is why no one ever invites us to parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fresh in your drink. <laughs> we're, um, we're such a cheerful lot, aren't the, we? The, uh, I, yeah, I was, I was going to go further down that and say, you know, this is Brave New World all over again, but uh, we, we won't go to dy dystopian futures. Will we, Johanna? Uh, are you going to say a dystopian comment? No, 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 oh, okay. no, no, no. All right. Um, well, I... I I want to talk about uh, the the our role with our bodies here. Speaking of that, um, and Matt, uh, you had said something about the talk about the social acceptance of tattoos. I mean, yeah, in, here we in, go. What, what <laughs> we're what we're what we're talking about here is um, the 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 kind of thinking that underthinking. Uh, cosmetic surgery and so yeah. forth like that is the kind of uh, thinking that um, that paves the way, I guess, for us to treat our bodies any and do with our bodies anything we want to do. So talk. Right. Here's so, why he gets kicked out of the occasional party he yeah, even gets invited Not only to. not invited, but kicked out. Uh, okay. <laughs> only the occasional Make us kick party? you out, Matt. <laughs> um, so... Jumping off of Ron's point about it's not just contraception, I think that's precisely right. Um, when we think about what bodies are and why we have them, we run into a, a host of questions and problems. Bodies are just really weird. I mean, we should just recognize this, right? They're odd. Um, they're, they're incredibly inefficient. Um, uh, we could do things so much faster if we didn't have bodies. Um, uh, and if we didn't have the care and the upkeep and uh, the, the time that's required to, uh, uh, to live within these things. Um, and the reality is that we're all implicated. So it's easy to look at things that have happened like gay marriage or Caitlyn Jenner or some of the headline-grabbing changes that have gone on in the last decade and think, you know, we have been through this massive revolution. How did we get here? And look at everything that's going on out there, and oh my gosh, it's, it's, it's impossible to make sense of. And I think one of the things that we have to recognize is that we are, we are all implicated, and that these headline-grabbing changes have been in the works for 50, 60 years in our society. Yeah, they um, didn't just descend on us overnight. Those, those hippies brought everything in. I mean, that's just not, that's it's, not how it works. This is not how it goes. And if you look at, for instance, something like tattoos, which sounds ridiculous because tattoos are, in the grand scheme of things, utterly insignificant. But if you look at my generation, quote-unquote millennials, we are four times as likely to have a tattoo than our parents' generation. And my, I, like, I had huge fights with my parents uh, over whether or not someone could get tattoos. And it's all really stupid looking back at it. Except if you think through many of the arguments surrounding tattoos, they're almost identical to the arguments that surround something like gay marriage, even down to the, well, I got a Bible verse in Leviticus, 
And, oh, but have you heard about shellfish and what Le Leviticus says about that, right? Um, <laughs> almost identical forms of arguments over tattoos and gay marriage. And the thing is, we're implicated in the kind of cultural upheaval because beneath it all is the sense, as Ron was saying, that bodies are um, plastic, that they're ours to do what we want with, provided we don't harm anyone. Everyone consents, and it brings us some kind of pleasure. You check those three boxes, no one can tell you otherwise. And the pervasiveness, if you will, of something like tattoos in our society um, is indicative to me of how we have largely imbi imbibed that understanding of the body um, without realizing it. And if you imbibe that understanding of the body without realizing it, the arguments for gay marriage will seem very attractive to you. And you can't help but be attracted to them because that's the uh, oxygen you've been breathing. It's the oxygen we've all been breathing without realizing it. And so there are, there are practices like that that seem innocuous, right? That seem benign. It seems like they don't matter, but they actually carry within them deep and fundamental commitments about the body that may be not in line with how we'd want to think about it. So, you know, if tattoos is out here, elective plastic surgery would be another one, right? Reshaping your body in accordance with a socially given norm or with um, a desire to have a certain aesthetic look, right? Doing it uh, not for reconstructive reasons, right? Which is a different kind of plastic surgery. A, a burn victim who gets plastic surgery is in a very different situation than uh, a person who's um, choosing to do so in, in order to fit a kind of magazine aesthetic. Um, and so, but these are the sorts of things that we have generally as Christians simply accepted without questioning because questioning them makes us not fun at parties. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> means we don't get invited. I, I, we're all talking about this hypothetical party. And I'm yeah, there sure was no I, party because <laughs> there is never a party yeah, with me. There's, there's so, never a party. Um, yes, Ron, Kind of following ahead. up on that, um, in 1 Corinthians 6, the immediate issue Paul is addressing is prostitution. But he says um, you are, one of the key arguments that he makes is you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Um, and one of the things that was very interesting to me in teaching philosophy is I taught medical ethics. Um, and so would try to get the students, you know, why is it that things like abortion and uh, euthanasia have such a big split between secular and religious perspectives? Yeah. What it, why is it, is it just a sort of divine command, arbitrary thing, or is there something deeper? Um, and pointed out, that you know, if you think that there is no God, then it's reasonable to think this is my body. I am the owner 
I get to do with it what I want. But if you believe you are not your own, you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, it's a very different relationship to what you think you can do with your body yep. if you believe yep. that. Um, and one of the things that I use to, to illustrate that, uh, when I first got out of college, I worked at Microsoft and had a great deal more money than I had as a philosopher. Um, <laughs> and I bought a house. And as a homeowner, you can decide that wall needs to go. And you walk out to your shed and get your sledgehammer. And I mean, there's just not, you can do what you want to your own house. Hopefully you give some thought to planning ahead before you knock things down. But it is really, um, you know, very largely, you are free to do what you want to do to a home that you own. When I was in grad school, I was renting a house, and the lease had things like, I needed written permission from the landlord to stick a tack into the wall to hang a picture, which is in some ways ludicrous, uh, but... Depends it's on the picture. What? <laughs> Depends on the picture, really. <laughs> But it's also, if you are renting somebody else's property, you have a very different set of responsibilities to that piece of property. If you're borrowing your friend's car, you have very different responsibilities. And the owner of that piece of property has all sorts of rights to make demands that no one would have if you owned it. And so um, I think, it's really important to see that, I mean, in some ways, whether you believe in God or not, you should be able to see why believing in God and believing that God is the owner of your body dramatically changes how you view what you can do with your body. And that it's not, um, if God actually, if your body has actually been bought by Christ, you have the idea that, you know, I can do whatever I want with my own body is, uh, is ludicrous in a way that it would actually be completely sensible if there is no God. If there is no God, then really who else would have a claim on what I do with my body? No one else would reasonably be able to tell me what to do with it. And I think that's a really key difference in how Christians think or even other religious believers think and the sort of secular consensus that governs our culture and this language of this is my body, which is a sort of blasphemous echo of Christ at the Last Supper. Um, but it's my, this is my body, I can do what I want with it, is almost the moral first principle of our culture. Yeah. Can it, I just it, follow up on... That's very true. Yes, briefly. Yeah, briefly, yeah. And the body as a God who... It's important to say that the God who gives and commands the body is a God who is good. Yes. And that yeah, the yeah. ordering and the limiting of bodily flesh is a gift of God's grace to mm. us. Yes. It's, his, it's a provision of his kindness. And so it's hard, it's really hard to think about 
living within a body that is determined by others who are not me. And it's really hard for us to hear that and to, to think that I've received this body and it's broken and it frustrates me and it really is slow and to think that this is all good. But it's, it's a terrible grace that God gives. That's a great and, phrase. You know, yeah. Paul's, in, in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, um, Paul's exhortation is, in view of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. And be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But it begins with the mercies of God, and the mercies of God for Paul are most on display in a body that is broken, mm. um, that is sacrificed, that is limited in ways that are horrible. And that's really, so it is really hard. It's a hard It's a hard reality. truth for us to hear, but I, I think we really have to underscore that these limits, this, this command that we are under is for our good uh, and for God's glory. And that's, that takes shape in mortal flesh in, in ways that um, we need to be able to see. Absolutely, and, and with that in mind, is this, is this really a fancy way, all of this, a fancy way of saying it's okay to be gay as long as you're celibate? I mean, is that, is that the bottom line of what we're saying? Or, or are we saying, uh, I mean, clearly, clearly, uh, the, the historic Orthodox understanding of Scripture is that uh, our bodies are made for working in a certain way uh, and being expressed sexually in a certain way. Um, and and we've, we've said and we're saying many things here on that uh, subject, but people who are a little bit more skeptical may just look at this and go, yeah, but, you know, you just want me not to have sex. Thoughts on that? I mean, that's really a, that's really a way not to engage with what you've just said, yeah. right? I mean, it's okay to be gay provided you take up your cross hmm. and follow Christ and follow Christ in the way in which God has laid out for himself to be followed in the realm of sex and marriage. Yeah. And those two ways are marriage to a member of the other sex or celibacy, uh, vocational sort of singleness. And those are, those are the options. And, um, and let, let's talk about celibacy just for a moment. We don't understand that well. I mean, we don't, at least, you know, Protestant Christianity doesn't understand that well. It just means not doing it as far as we're concerned. But there's, there's really... There's a whole life orientation there, isn't there? I mean, it's not just that. Well, thankfully, as you've seen on the news, the Catholic Church is doing really well with celibacy these days. Yeah, well. <laughs> oh, oh, it's sad. I, no, it's sad. It is, it is uh, The, the sad trombones Golly. are playing now. Uh, I should say I'm Catholic, so that was not a dig. It's a sad lament yeah. uh, of conditions at home. Um, so I, I think that the important thing with both marriage and celibacy, um, there 
ultimately outward-directed callings. Um, it's a way of service to the body of Christ. Yeah. Um, I think that um, celibate callings afford quite a bit of variety um, because I think you know, marriage is there's the existence of children shapes the obligations of parents um, pretty tightly for a large portion of their married life. And celibacy, you know, there's a lot of different ways. The point, I mean, certainly your call, whether you live your calling as a Christian married or single um, does a lot to shape the overall form of it. But there's also, it's not, um, you know, if you say married vocation or single vocation as if that defines everything about your life in Christ, that's not yeah. true. You know, yeah. you can be um, a married pastor or a celibate pastor. Um, and there are things that are in common to both of those, and there are ways that each of, way of being a pastor is very different. Um, so I, I think that when you talk about celibate vocation, um, you want to have, that conversation needs to involve, and what is it that, you know, how are your gifts gonna be used in the church? What is it that you're going to, how is it that you're going to build up the body of Christ? And if your discussion of celibacy centers around just not doing it, um, it becomes very bleak. Uh, but I think... Yeah, it's defined from absence. Right, it, right. Rather than... Right, and I think that if, I think that what you want is primarily a conversation about how is it that I'm called to serve the church. Um, and for married couples, um, that calling has to be wrapped up in some way in also their vocation to care for their children and raise their children in the church. Um, but, but I think it really has to be, the conversation has to revolve around um, how is it that I serve? And then sure. under that, you know, how is it that I be faithful and how do I deal with whatever challenges come up along the way? But I think not having that outward focus um, very easily makes the sort of negative don't do it feel stale and empty. And it's very easy then to turn to sinful relationships. And, and Ron, is, don't we, is this something that, because this is such a hard thing for us to, uh, to comprehend, our culture certainly, and, and our, the church is right, right in there, um, to say, okay, I'm going, going to serve the Lord in, instead of having sex. You know, I, I mean, really, I mean, in a, in a crass way, that's right. how we would say but is this something that the church can be teaching, Ron? It, we don't teach this. We don't say, I mean, we say, don't have sex. The church is really right. good at that. But, uh, but we don't say, 
Serve the Lord. Sublimate. And that's a word that nobody, nobody knows what that word means. You know, sublimate the... the that's what a submarine does, right? No. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> we, we say... Uh, we, we don't know how to talk about this. We don't know how to say transform uh, sexual desire into energy to serve the Lord. You know, and, and I guess in one way of thinking about it, we... Western civilization, you could say, was saved in large part by celibate, most you know, celibate people, uh, men and, and, and women who dedicated their life to the monastic life and preserving scripture and learning and so forth. But it's a little too far in the weeds. But I mean, we, we how do we say, is this something that the church needs to teach? I'm going to answer that. Yeah. Matt, okay. Um, it, it Forget come, you, Ron. Yeah, Matt, Ron. I'm yeah, we're going to go with we Matt. need Episcopalians. Yeah, <laughs> we do. Um, the so I mean this it picks up on some of Johanna's earliest comments, right, about uh, the reductionistic way in which we talk about singleness within the church, and it's absolutely the case that we need um, churches that hold up singleness as a viable vocation as a path forward. Um, and one way to do it is to say, serve the church. Um, I think I, I get worried in talking about singleness and its relationship to marriage that um, singleness becomes the de facto babysitter's club, um, where <laughs> what serving the church amounts to is supporting the married couples by watching their children. It's a fine thing to do, don't get me wrong. Like that's, that's really actually but quite it's a, valuable. But it's a fair point. Right, but there's, but there's more to the vocation of singleness than serving the church by way of stepping in and helping married couples in their own task. The marriage and celibacy are two ways, two distinct ways of communicating the same truths to the world. And they are both deeply valuable in that And they have regard. to be together. And if you don't have celibacy, you will almost certainly idolize marriage and sexuality okay. and sexual behavior. Wait a minute. Say that again. If you don't have celibacy in your community, if it's not a viable path forward, you will almost certainly idolize marriage and everything that goes along with marriage, including children, sexual activity, etc. Because one thing that celibate individuals do is point forward to a life of the kingdom within the kingdom of God where there shall be neither marrying nor being given in marriage, but we shall all be like the angels in heaven. The words of Jesus. Says Math, uh, Jesus in Matthew 19. And by pointing forward to the actual fulfillment of our eschatological life, right? Like the fulfillment, the perfection of our community as Christians. Celibate individuals, single individuals within the church remind the church of the limited temporal, the, the, the fact that marriage is passing away. Right, that it is bound to this world. And Paul is in 1 Corinthians 7 is really critical of this, right? Yeah, that's right? It's a form of life that's passing away. And the absence of those who remind a church community of that fact, like if you don't have that, 
then you forget that marriage and children and these, these bonds are passing away and you will overvalue them. You can't not mm. because you'll forget. Um, so I think like understanding singleness as a, as a, as a vocation of um, a prophetic vocation of reminding mm. the church of the limited uh, duration and turning them into babysitters is in one way the exact opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. I think, wow. Yeah, I think that's uh, really important. I think also in seeing celibacy as in some ways a sign of life in the kingdom where there's no marrying or giving in marriage, um, you should also, you should think, you know, in one way this is true, um, but it's also, it's in a way like marriage is an image of Christ and the church. So that is not necessarily a description of what every celibate person or every marriage looks like, but it tells you what, if you are married, you are striving towards living a life that reveals to the world how Christ loves the church and how the church is supposed to respond to Christ. If you are celibate, you are called to be living in the world in a way that points to the kingdom of heaven where there is neither marrying nor being given in marriage. The odds are you have some learning to do and some formation <laughs> to do to get there. The, the odds are, yes. Um, and, and so I think there, on the one hand, it's very important to see if my vocation is a celibate vocation, I am called to live in a way that reveals that aspect of the mystery of the kingdom. If I am called to be married, I am called to live in a way that reveals the union of Christ and the church in the world. Mainly what that tells me is I've got a lot to do to get there. <laughs> There's a lot of purification that has to happen. Prayer, fasting, all of these spiritual disciplines. But it's also really important to have that goal that you are striving towards. You, know, you think about, um, well, I mean, for example, I uh, just earlier this week um, watched the movie First Man about Neil Armstrong uh, and the flight to the moon. And it's, you know, the men and women who worked at NASA in the 1960s to get to the moon were incredibly focused and made enormous sacrifices. Some of them were killed either in training or in the Apollo 1 fire, but they had this incredible dedication to in an unbelievably short period of time go from no human being has been in space to we have men walking on the moon. And I think that that's when we talk about these vocations, it's not look at me today, look at the wonderful way that I'm exemplifying the kingdom of heaven or the union of Christ and the church, but there's this thing that I am striving towards oh, yeah. and hopefully We're striving towards with that kind of intensity to get from where I am now to being able mm. to illuminate that to the world. Very good, Joanne. Oh, just quick, just, and I think, I don't think you disagree with this, but not just a striving, right? 
but also uh, something that can be uh, a comfort and encouragement, right? Yes. Is, you know, I'm assuming I haven't been celibate for a while, but I imagine I definitely feel this way about being married, but there are days when you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not really doing this very well, and ah, uh, it's such a mess. But if you remind, you know, as in my case, the, the calling to be sort of an icon of, of Christ's relationship with the church, um, it can infuse a sort of um, meaning and beauty into the, yes. into the, even our fallen, fallible little marriage we've got going on. And, and so yet there's a striving aspect, but there's also an encouraging aspect. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, I want to ask one more question that I want to get a, a quick take from each of you, and then we're going to go into a Q&A time. So, and the question is, how can the church reconcile with our society on this very contentious issue? I mean, we're not going to... How can it begin steps toward reconciling and di dialing down the hostility on this very contentious mm -hmm. issue? Um, and I'll take anything. Johanna? Um, two thoughts. Uh, first uh, is for us to, uh, one thing I hear a lot from Christians is, why do they hate us so much? Um, yeah. And But I think we evangelicals are notorious for our short uh, memory duration. Um, mm. There is very little, like in terms of threats to religious liberty, employment discrimination, um, there's very little that certain gay activists or you know groups right now are trying to do to Christians that Christians weren't trying to do to gay people a few decades ago. Um, so, so, so remember. Well, yeah, we just realize that this is where they're coming from, yeah, yeah. and that you know, not you know, obviously we can't go back in time. You know, a lot of us weren't adults when those decisions were made, right. but if, you know, given that lots of Christians, you know, wanted uh, uh, homosexual, homosexuality criminalized, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard, it, and this, this wasn't even, it wasn't even that long ago, uh, Lawrence v. Texas, and That's all right. the Christians were on Texas the other, all, lots of the Christians were, were on the other side of it, I'm not, I'm not trying yeah. to, yeah. I don't want to adjudicate that right or wrong either way, but I do want to say if you, that needs to be your context where you're like, wow, why aren't they more worried about my religious liberty? Yeah. You know, yeah, we, exactly. were like, we were like, okay, well, look the other way, but you've got to hide it, and you know, we're going to hold this, this criminal stick over your head. So yeah. you know, they're like, hey, if, if, it was, if, if your message to us was you know, don't flaunt it and we'll, you know, why do you feel the need to live, you know, why would yeah. we let you live your faith openly? So, and, that, and that doesn't solve the problem, it's just recognizing it's a sure. factor. Absolutely. The other thing um, I'm from, I, need, I remind myself of, and I often, when I'm talking to, to straight Christians who are frustrated, uh, remember that uh, because of what we have in Christ, uh, we are free to give generously to people and love generously toward people without needing them to respond in a certain way. So I think about the, the parable, Good. right, of the banquet. We're, we're, I guess, not, but when Jesus says, you know, when you throw a banquet, you know, uh, invite the people who, who, don't, who don't can't repay people you. people that are going to pay you yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. and, and this people. is, 
Because yeah. the thing I hear a lot from Christians who try to reach out is, you know, oh, you know, they were hostile to me and they didn't receive this well and they didn't receive yeah. that well. If you are always looking for the instant payback, like, oh, I'm going to be not, you know, Good. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to reach out, Good. I'm going to extend myself and, you know, God's going to bless it and they're going to fall to their yeah. knees and have a Damascus Road experience. It's going to yeah. be amazing. You know, <laughs> it, it... And then you woke up. Uh, but um, it's... Yeah. We... Because of what we have uh, through Christ in the Holy Spirit and that we aren't loving from a love within ourselves. We can reach out over and over again. We can reach out in the face of, we can keep loving in the face yeah. of hostility. Um, and we don't, we don't need people to respond in our dream fantasy way. Okay, good. Ron. You came to the wrong people if you wanted a quick take. Well, that's okay. Quick, quick ask. <laughs> Quick ask. Um, so I think um, I will just make one point. Um, in Matthew 16, there's first the scene with Peter and Jesus where he says, you know, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. And I'm not going to get into the interpretations of that. Good. Um, <laughs> Romanist. But, Romanist. But then very soon after that, Christ starts to predict his passion, his suffering on the, being turned over and suffering on the cross, and and Peter objects. You know that can't happen, and Christ's response is, "Get behind me, Satan." The idea that we can't suffer in our obedience to God is. Christ responds to that as a satanic temptation. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think that part of what can make us so hostile, and this is part of why I know this, is because I get hostile, um, <laughs> is thinking the way that other people treat me is unfair. I should, I'm doing the right thing, people should cheer me for doing that. I should not have to suffer, but I am suffering. Therefore, these other people are Satan and I have to destroy them, which is not where Christ saw Satan in this right. thing. He right. saw it in, in, in the idea, in Peter's idea, that Christ should not suffer. That was where Christ saw Satan, not in the people who were preparing to crucify him. And that, I don't like saying that because frankly, I would rather cut off their ears and, <laughs> you know, that's I would much rather attack the people who are attacking me. Yeah. But as I think about the answer to his question, that was unfortunately what came to mind. No, I, that's <laughs> fantastic. Yes, okay, Matt. <clears throat> I think the... Clarity and conviction of um, proclaiming the gospel on these issues and the courage required to do so in a way that sounds like good news mm. begins by recognizing and confessing the way in which we ourselves and our communities are implicated in what we are denouncing engaging in something like contrition for that, 
and adopting practices that order us away from being so implicated. Mm -hmm. And absent such practices and absent such a, an awareness of how our own lives are entangled in what we are um, seeking to uh, proclaim against for the sake of the world, without yeah. seeing how our own lives are entangled, we will not have the conviction and the clarity and the grace that the world needs. And so I would say that's where I would begin. Yeah, we're all part of the system, aren't we? We, we, have, we have, in many ways, invited this yeah. kind of, of uh, controversy. Um, okay, uh, thank you so much. We're gonna um, turn to a time of Q&A now. And remember, if you want to text a question in, this is anonymous, really. Uh, I don't get a name when you text in. Um, Just an IP address. And yeah, then... and I'll track that down. Um, yeah. Uh, we actually do have several questions. That if you want to, if you log on to slido.com uh, and then enter the the code midweek, then then you can. Uh, I think we're ringing here. Yeah, it's um, me. Then it's my can, fault. Yeah. Uh, then you can uh, text a question in. And so first, uh, do you think people? Who, who identify as gay but are secretly living as a straight person in a marriage are going against God's will. Johanna, you're a gay person I, in a hmm. straight marriage. Sorry, secretly? I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, I, um, do I you think they're think, in the closet. Do you, think, oh, yeah. do you think people who identify as gay but are secretly living as a straight person in a marriage in other words, that's the public face. Oh, okay. Are going against God's will. Um, I, think. I don't think you're. I don't think such a person uh, is going against uh, God's will by being married or, or being faithful to their marriage. I will say that uh, God has definitely shown this in my own life. There are opportunities that come up from being open. Uh, it is from. First of all, being open with your spouse. Uh, I don't, my husband knowing and understanding and supporting and, and me. And he knew been going huge, in. Yes, he knew going in. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, his support and just being in there and being someone I can talk to in the midst of this has been such an enormous, I don't, I don't think I would be able to, I hear about people who live in total secrecy. And the, But the other point I would make is, uh, I've also made the choice to be open with my church. Mm. Um, you know, I was <laughs> speaking here. Um, yeah. Uh, Is that your uh, real name, Johanna? Pena? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and that's, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not saying someone who doesn't do that is, is going against God's will, but there are opportunities and, from and they, being honest and from make, you know, I think a lot of times in the church, I think there are a lot of people in the church who know a lot more and have a lot more experience of this issue than they're letting on, but everybody's isolated from each other. Everybody's living their own little private hell yeah. because nobody can talk about it. And so it's scary. Yes, there are some people in the church who I'm sure treat me differently than they would otherwise and not always for the better. Well, but, that happens anyway. Right, 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 right. But... Uh, 
for my to myself, it's been a huge blessing to be open and honest about the so, reality of what I experience, and I believe it's blessed others uh, yeah, in, no doubt. in the church as well. And so, so that person is not going against God's will, but maybe taking on more burden than is necessary. Right, uh, right. And I, you know, people so often surprise you. There are sometimes negative surprises, but uh, I think in sharing with other genuine believers, especially if it's somebody who knows yeah. you, uh, it's not even so much they may have something helpful to say, but uh, Satan can get on you so much about your secrets and yeah. can go after you with so many lies about what they think about you and what they would do if they knew, really knew you and can get you, can just devour you like that hmm. and discourage you and bring you down and you, you destroy, you, you break that power once you start being honest and talking to people. Good, good. Um, this is a question for Ron. Um, did you engage in sex at some point in your life and then decide to remain celibate because of guilt or a specific reason? Um, no, I uh, was um, in my teens when I came around to holding the traditional view on sexuality and had not become sexually active at that point. Um, I think for me, um, guilt has really played very little role in my thinking about this. Um, I think it's much more um, a sense of this is God's intention, um, and this that, by by me this celibacy, celibacy, okay, um, and you know the way that um, that I came around to that was more um, in terms of desiring obedience uh, than feeling guilty for disobedience. Okay. Um, and I think part of it, in my earlier teens, I had um, taken more of a, you know, embryonic revisionist approach of, you know, the church what has the changed. What the heck does that mean? Well, the church oh. has changed so many other things. Um, you know, for example, um, I went to a church that didn't have a lot of money, so their library, the books were kind of out of date. And so a lot of the books on sexuality were from the 60s where Christians were just coming around on contraception and very anxious to argue that it was a good thing uh -huh. and that their parents had been wrong to say that it was a bad thing. And so I, you know, in thinking about this, had come across a lot of why Christians were changing what they had thought, you know, parents or grandparents' generation. Yeah. Um, and so I had thought, well, you know, this is, I will um, change along, you know, it's, this is just the next step. And similar sorts of, you know, God's grace rather than legalism and 
that was kind of the way that I was thinking. And then, um, again, starting to recognize, well, but, you know, look at, um, you know, we talk about uh, divorce as more, you know, now we're taking a more graceful approach and we're not harshly judging couples that have divorced and remarried. But then looking at my friends whose parents divorced and thinking about how painful that was for some of them. Yeah. And thinking like maybe there's actually some wisdom in what God says. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so you know, not necessarily in feeling in my teens, oh, isn't it wonderful that I'm going to be celibate? But at least being able to see that there is a wisdom in not having sex before marriage remaining faithful for life, remaining faithful in celibacy, mm. and, you know, in the sense that um, you can look at a mountain and think it would be amazing to climb up there without it being easy to do or whatever. I mean, there, there's a sense of what I'm aspiring to obedience can be attractive and that there's something good about it, even if it's difficult. Okay. Um, boy, a lot of questions coming in here. And so, um, um, how do you? Uh, oh, hang on, just a minute. Uh, if if a thief repents and no longer sins, they no longer identify as a thief. So, should someone who lo no longer sins homosexually still identify as gay or lesbian? So, um, I think in part, the words operate differently. Um, and I think more practically, um, you know, so if I'm, when I was in undergrad and talking with friends or pastors about, you know, I'm feeling very lonely, like, well, you should date or get married. Like, well, that's not good advice. Why? Well, if you can't say, there's a way in which uh, sexual orientation shapes your life choices in a way that the inclination to steal or not steal yeah. just doesn't yeah. uh, impact. And so there, you know, there were a lot of questions where the obvious advice to give someone who was straight didn't, didn't apply make sense because I wasn't. And so then, um, you know, there's that aspect of it. But then I think also as, um, you know, so I had those conversations and then after I'd been having those conversations with friends and stuff for a while, I started having, you know, someone else would come out to them and they would be like, oh, Ron is the person who knows something about this gay thing. And so I, you know, my friend, Joe's friend just came out and Joe doesn't know what to say. So I should tell Joe to go talk to Ron because Ron's the person who can, has some clue yeah. about right. what this whole gay thing is about. Right. And so, you know, I, I think both in terms of my own life and then in terms of 
why would you care what I have to say about these things? It matters to say, saying, somehow naming the fact that I'm not sexually attracted to women and I am sexually attracted to men matters for talking about how I live and it says something about why you should care about what I have to say. Yeah. And what is it that you should care about what I have to say about? Well, gay stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, Johanna, if you have Just quick add on, like, what he said, but um, also uh, I myself uh, didn't, uh, I became a Christian when I was 20, um, and so uh, in the immediate aftermath of that, I did stop using gay language, and in my, I would have said I stopped identifying as gay. Um, I made the decision a few years ago to start using that language again, uh, in part for a lot of the reasons that, that Ron said, um, but also, uh, particularly in my situation as a, as a woman, in, you know, from a lesbian background in a, in a, in a mixed, and who's now married to a man, a lot of people, I just found without me saying anything, a lot of people just try to present my narrative as, you know, healing and, and, yeah, right. and transformation and she used to be gay and now she's not. You know, without me saying anything, you know, just assume, right? Yeah. Um, and so, honestly, and, and that's destructive. It's destructive because people will take that expectation and put that on, you know, uh, their children who right. may be struggling with, right. with same-sex attraction or, or other issues right. or, you know, other believers that they know and, you know, either to say, wow, you must be doing it yeah. wrong, you know, look, God changed her, God changed yeah. him, what's yeah. wrong with you? Or, you know, get married and God will heal you. And those have been so destructive, those just in terms of discouragement and leading people into choices that situations that God can redeem but are very difficult situations. So for, for myself personally, I think it's important to be honest and I find identifying the clearest and most direct way to do that. Mm. And if I could just say very briefly, the other thing is that I find talking to most gay people, if I say I'm gay and celibate, the, it, it's pretty straightforward what that means. Um, I think it would be difficult to say, I'm a thief who's never stolen. <laughs> like, oh, well, yeah, that's but like, true. But it does, you know, to say um, to someone else who's gay, I'm gay, but I'm celibate, I've never had sex. Yeah, uh, yeah. That they There's know it. exactly what you mean by that. That means you're attracted to men the same way they are, but yeah. you haven't. So, so I think that there's a way in which just intuitively the word is not used the same way that thief is used. Johanna, are you attracted to your husband? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, it varies in seasons. Uh, I have seasons when I'm more strongly attracted to him and seasons when I'm less strongly attracted to him. Um, I would say that... Uh, The emotional bond uh, is definitely the, the, the core and, and the root of our relationship. I did not see him across a room and be like, 
oh man, I, you know, I want a piece of that. You know, it, it was not, it, it was not like that. Can you say that more closely into the mic? <laughs> we didn't quite get I'm, that. I'm sorry. Um, no, um, uh, whoa, sorry. Uh, is it okay? The mic wants to get close. <laughs> no, um, so, like, it's a hard question. So I would say that, uh, we have a lot, I love him, we have a lot of fun together in all aspects of our marriage. Uh, I, I do experience attracted, attraction towards him. I did fall in love with him. At the same time, uh, if I'm honest, it, there's a way in which it doesn't feel as intensely overwhelming uh, as being with a woman felt. Like there's a way in which I would still say, I think in some sense my natural orientation, attraction is homosexual. Mm -hmm. That doesn't stop me from, from loving my husband and enjoying marriage, but you know, I bet if you hooked me, you know, hooked me up to all these things and showed me different kinds of porn and, and you know, evaluated the results, yeah. it might show. Yeah, not, that's not part of this. Uh, no, sorry, I'm sorry, but I just, yeah. sorry, I'm just trying to explain. <laughs> no, I'm just saying uh, that's not part of the protocol here. We're, we're not gonna do that, so you don't have to worry. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, there's a difference. I, we, I would we not put say the electrodes away. Uh, I would not like. I respond differently to women than to men. I respond yeah, more yeah, intensely absolutely. to women than to men. Absolutely. Um, and now, Matt, uh, this is a question for you. It's and, terrifying following following yeah, that know, last answer. I, I don't even want to. We're not going to ask if you're attracted to your wife. But, um, I am. Thank yeah, you. I know. Um, Help us but but I will say but but I will say I mean what jo Johanna says about seasons I think probably any marriage well any marriage does is, that and, and it's worth underscoring that yeah. right like we're all gay uh, no no I no, that was I, not what I was no, going I know, to say I know, but. I know. I'm kidding I'm kidding um, but yeah that's that's exactly right there and are it, seasons there, there is this is not intrinsic to a, a certain type of marriage and I'm sure it's very distinct uh, like I don't mean to minimize that but yeah, but yeah. that's just yeah. to say. Right, and that it, it, it there are false visions of what the married life can, can be like, such and that we would hear that description and think, well, that's just because right, right, of this, right. and, and the it's false not. Visions, that, that can't be said enough, and that is one of the valuable things about talking honestly about right. uh, marriage and about the kind of your life, Johanna, points up the, the hard truths about marriage, and it shines that light on marriage across all uh, experiences, uh, because it is, this, in, in many ways, there is a, there is a, um, an intrepid sort of rigor to faithfulness in, in your instance. I, I don't mean to sound patronizing, what I'm saying is it's encouraging to me and to others, I think, because uh, you say sometimes it just sucks or, or it's just really at low ebb. And, um, and what then? You know, what then? What's left? You know, and so we say, well, love is there and that means it has certain implications for how we live. Matt, I'm just trying to avoid this question, but it's worth saying that my wife, I'm pretty sure she has an anti-me orientation, and so it's really just a miracle, actually, that we're married well, in the first place. Yeah, I know. Well, As I know. any reasonable woman would have, yeah, I mean, to be clear. Anti-you. Um, 
Matt, help us understand what you meant about the pros of marriage where children are chosen. Uh, gay people choose their child maybe more than unfit parent, and I'm guessing they... Yeah, you know. so I, if I communicated that I'm uh, pro a vision where the meaning of children is that they're chosen, I miscommunicated. I think that's actually kind of a problem, um, that for marriages, whether they're uh, same-sex marriages or different sex marriages, just marriages, um, uh, I think it's kind of a problem that we look at children and say, children are the sort of creatures that we choose and who are only welcome within our home in as much as we choose them. Yeah. Um, so you're saying actually the opposite. Yeah, right? so I, yeah. I, I really do want to be clear on that, and I appreciate whoever asked that question forcing me to, to, to clarify that, because I do think the... Um, it is true that same-sex couples uh, raise children, and they do so in ways that are parental, um, but I, I actually think that they do so without being parents in the fullest sense of the term, because parenthood is the kind of thing that has something to do with marriage. Um, parenthood is uh, uh, the overflow of a marriage. Um, it's marriage where a child comes into the union, from the union, um, and the, the task of parenting is in part not just to deliver care to this child to make sure that they get a good education and uh, that they uh, get, have food on the table and whatnot, but the task of parenting is to help this child see and understand the kind of thing that marriage is. And so it's as a, as a task, parenthood has to be intrinsically linked, I think, in its full sense to what marriage is. Mm -hmm. and, and in that sense, I, I do think that same-sex couples uh, can in many ways provide care for a child that would be superior to being left in an orphanage, for instance, right? Because the, the intimacy of the care matters. But I don't think that they are parents in the proper sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the fact that they chose a child does not make them parents in the fullest sense. That's very unpopular. I will say... It is, I mean, and it's a, that's it, a contentious... Yeah, uh, un, unsurprisingly. Um, for what it's worth, free plug. Um, if, you, if, if you do want to talk more about this, I'll actually be back down in San Antonio on November 7th, I think, at UTSA um, with John Corvino, who is a gay atheist... Uh, uh, advocate and philosopher, and we're going to be doing a dialogue um, oh. on why he's wrong about everything. <laughs> that's, that's I think it's titled that, in fact, why John is wrong yeah. about everything. Just, he's he's a good friend of mine, it's and such it's an, such an honest. Dialogue. It's on something um, like, can we coexist? So yeah, good. Um, and the oh, answer seems to be no. No, so. right? Yeah, <laughs> but, that's, can, but can, that's a personal can, problem. Can one? Can one thrive in a? Can one only thrive in a celibate calling, by living in a certain type of community? If so, what does this community need to have? Ron, you want to um, that? I mean, I, I think. So first of all, I think that often, thriving as a celibate does need community. 
Um, I think always, in some sense, it needs community. Um, I think there are different levels of community that may be required. And um, so I, I would not want to say that there's like some specific form of celibacy that you know, everyone has to fit this particular pattern. Um, what I would say is, um, first of all, I think a lot of times, uh, particularly when you're dealing with homosexuality, same-sex attraction, whatever, um, there's the idea that community is a source of temptation and danger. And I don't think that's yeah, wrong. I, I think that there, that, that's a there, are, notion. there are reasons to be concerned with that. Um, and certainly right now in the Catholic Church, we are seeing a whole lot of fruit of those dangers not being adequately taken into account, mm. uh, inadequate reaction as problems start showing up. But, but that's a but, problem in, the com in community, the way yes. the community is structured, not the community itself, right. or the and, idea and of community. So the first right? thing that I would say is that um, I think a person who lives alone in their own apartment, um, that is an extraordinarily dangerous situation uh, as far as the opportunities that it presents. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, just loneliness and then the ways that loneliness can feed things like pornography, uh, can, you know, there's very little accountability in living on your own, so it's very easy for someone who lives on their own to live a double life, have you know the way that they present themselves at church, the way they present themselves at work, being totally divorced from the way they present themselves on their anonymous dating profile or whatever. Yeah. And that being in community where there are other people around um, makes it much more difficult to uh, create this sort of double life. Um, I think that there's very different ways. You know, community could mean um, living with family. So, um, you know, there was a period of time when I was in grad school uh, where I lived with my sister and her husband and their children. Um, and one of the things about being in grad school is that although I have a lot of work, I had a fairly flexible schedule at that point. I was teaching, but I was no longer taking classes. So there was a lot that I had to do, but there was only an hour or so a day that was scheduled. And so there were a lot of ways that I could step in and help my sister and brother-in-law to fill gaps that otherwise uh, would be difficult for them. And I wouldn't recommend that to everyone, but as it happened, we were in the same city and I was a starving grad student, and they were new parents who were not financially straightened, but certainly were out of time. Yeah. And so it made sense that this was a way that um, our needs worked together. And for a few years, that made a very good arrangement. Um, but I think that it's going to be the actual form of community will vary quite a bit across you know, the type of church that you're in. Some, there are churches that have intentional communities in some way yeah. attached to them. Um, and this, of so course, is a time-honored uh, right. Christian concept, too, yeah. living in and, a community, in a celibate community. And it's often, you know, in a 
just organic way, you'll get to know friends and you'll organize roommate situations. Sometimes for very practical, you know, financial reasons. Uh, sometimes just, you know, it's nice to have people there when you come home after work or school. Uh, sometimes with a more intent, you know, we are going to meet for Bible study as a house on Wednesday evenings, or we are going to get together and pray for 15 minutes before we go to bed. Or you know, you, There's various ways of structuring things, and so you can, I wouldn't want to prescribe any, yeah. that there's just one way of doing it, um, because often whatever I prescribed, it might not be available to you in your particular location, but there might be other kinds of community that were available and that would be a good way. So I think it's kind of a discernment process of what do I need and what's available and who can I talk to and... And let me just ask uh, uh, the, the group here, the church itself, if the church itself is uh, a, a church in which a person can openly talk about uh, sexual orientation, is that in itself, could that be more conducive? I mean, you're in a church, Johanna, in which people know that you're gay. So mm -hmm. the, what, if, what if you were in a church that you couldn't share that? I mean, that would cut off some avenues of community, would it not? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So. I mean, so I, when we first started going to our church, uh, an older woman uh, invited me out to coffee. Uh, and uh, just as you sometimes do with getting to know each other, conversations with Christians, she she asked if I was raised in the or somehow it came up that I wasn't raised Christian. Um, and you can't really tell my conversion story without bringing homosexuality into it. And I'd never been closeted before, so I just told her. I was like, yeah. "Yep, so this is what happened. You know, I was this, 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 this happened, this happened, and you know." And she was like. And then she was quiet, and she said, and I'd moved from Boston, so she said, you know, I think, you know, here in the Midwest, in Ohio, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't share that with anyone except someone I was really close with. And, you know, and her whole body language and everything communicated, like, oh, my gosh, I wish you hadn't shared this with me. Yeah, yeah, um, wow. And so I didn't for, hmm. for years, hmm. and it was terrible for me. It was, like I said before, Satan just takes that opportunity and, and hurt, you know, hurts you with it, hurts you, and you can't, it's hard for me to invest in getting to know someone if the thought hanging over my head is, well, how will they react when they really know me? You know, so I'm going to, you know, hang out with this other mother of, pre, of preschool children or whatever, and we're going to spend all this time together, but I'm not going to mention, you know, this isn't going to come up, and then maybe whatever, a year down the line, I'll, I'll say something. Like, how, it's hard, it's hard to invest in a relationship if, if there's just a big question mark over it, yeah. because you can't, it's what would, yeah, how would they react if they knew? And yeah. Another thing I think about that is that that can greatly exaggerate the importance of sexual orientation. Absolutely. That right. it's... Ironically. Yeah, that if it's this 
thing that constant you are constantly having to think about how people will react or whatever, it yeah. vastly That's increases right. its That's importance. Right. Um, and I remember a number of years ago, I went to talk to a pastor on um, kind of about big vocational questions, where am I going with my life? And so he asked me to um, you know, tell me a bit about your story and what are things. And so um, I, in the process of this, you know, talked about being gay, and this was kind of a big part of the narrative. And he's like, well, okay, so you're gay. But the important question is, you know, what is it that God is calling you to do in the church? And it's just sort of like, okay, you know. Yeah, wow. Okay, but let's talk about the big stuff. And, it, <laughs> and I think that that, uh, was, that was a very, very helpful reaction because yeah. it said, you know, yeah, you've got this issue, but it's not what defines you let's talk about, you know, yeah, it's gonna be there, yeah, it's gonna shape in some ways what you do, but let's put the focus on how is God calling you, and if this thing is relevant to that, then we'll bring it in, but I'm only interested in it as it affects that's how good. God is that's calling good. you, and that's a very helpful perspective. I have one final question here. Can I say something on this point just very yes. briefly? Yes, absolutely. On, on, on the point of community and us being implicated and, and not recognizing the oxygen that we breathe and how it structures these mm -hmm. issues, um, we have households that are not really households. They're homes where we have uh, uh, parents and children, but almost no one else who uh, either lives with us, either on a temporary or permanent basis. And one of the things that we are going to face, already are facing in, in the church, is an epidemic of loneliness yes. and an yes. epidemic of um, uh, generational isolation, where we have all the young people who live among the young people and the wise people who live among the wise people and nary the two groups meet. And one of the urgent tasks for our Christian communities, and I think it relates to these issues, yeah. is the recovery of the Christian household, mm. the openness of our doors, the doors of our homes to lots of other people to come in um, to experience uh, home life and to uh, uh, participate vicariously in the formation mm. that comes along with that. So many gay individuals who are facing loneliness, churches need to be the kind of places that are forming households in their people that where gay Christians can have a place within those households and experience sort of vicarious care. Uh, and I think that's a really urgent task that requires rethinking all of our own lives in ways that are very challenging yeah. to us. I, I write to you and all who are in your household, and this is yep. this is what we we read this in the New Testament. And, yep. and these households were often uh, extensive in this way. That's right. Um, and loneliness, the the church dealing with loneliness, may be even the larger issue. Yeah. Because it, it is a community issue that 
in which all these other things are subsumed, aren't they, uh, in some degree. Um, this, we've got to close with this because we're, we're really just out of time. So um, and this is a weighty question. Give us some practical examples in 20 seconds of how the single celibate Christian can live in such a way that points others to heaven where there is no giving in marriage. Uh, so that we are not, there's no giving, uh, we're, we're not married or given in marriage. How do we point, how do single and celibate Christians point the way to that practically? We just remind people of that passage. Oh yeah, that passage in Matthew 19. That's a large well, question. I mean, I, I think part of it is um, being a counter witness to the idea of sexual need that was talked about before. Mm. Like that this is essential to happiness or flourishing or to having a good life is that if you are not um, sexually satisfied, then you can't have a good life. But in turn, the church needs to be speaking to that, doesn't yes. it? And, mm -hmm. and assisting that oh, absolutely. individual, just like it would assist married Yes, absolutely. But I, I think that that, um, you know, it, it requires, I think, you know, the, um, the life in heaven is not of isolated, lonely individuals who are not marrying or giving in marriage. It's, well, and maybe it's what Matt was saying. Maybe in the, in the way that we uh, gather mm -hmm. communities. Right, Matt, but, I, but I think it's You're right, being able to, um, to be in community and have those rich connections, but also to witness that uh, sex is not necessary for forming community. That That's you right. You don't have to have sexual bonds to have um, deep, meaningful community with yeah. another person yeah. Yeah. or with other people. Well, the, this whole idea of, of community and the gathering, and I love what, you know, it's not a <laughs> heaven of isolated, lonely individuals, um, but, but the gathering of communities uh, in extended households, perhaps in a practical way. I mean, in the days ahead, maybe this is what uh, a question we have to answer. I uh, think that's right. I mean, I would say two things to it. Good question, because this, uh, I mean, this was a, a Bible verse that I drove us to, so I feel obligated to say something yeah. practical. Yeah, thanks. Um, cultivate hospitality mm. and the practices mm. of hospitality. Learn to do that for all the families in your church. It's one thing to babysit so that the married couple can go have their time together. It's another to provide them, to bring them into your home yeah. as a family and uh, provide for them that way yes. and to be hospitable and to be a center of community to provide the meal to your mm. your community. And the other thing I would say is um, cultivate the practices of prayer and give up Netflix forever and ever. Amen. Don't watch any more of it. Don't watch it. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Just give up Netflix. I, I heard the sound of stock prices dropping. Just don't do it anymore. Yeah. You'll become a far more weird person 
than you are right now, but you'll be a far more interesting person. And if you cultivate the life of prayer alongside giving yeah. up Netflix, you will carry in your bodies the life of the kingdom because you'll get good sleep and you will have joy and vibrancy that are unparalleled. You are really weird. And, and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak, but you Everybody, just gotta do you, it. Would you thank this panel, uh, please? I'm not even joking.